guys. Good morning. Good to see you. And uh, thanks for coming this morning. Just, just great to have so many of you here. Again, like Mark said, to those to whom it applies, happy Father's Day. And uh, um, yeah, great to see you. Listen, questions you never thought you could ask in church continues today. And uh, like we did last week, we're going to be batting cleanup with some of the unanswered questions that we just didn't have time to get to last week. But again, for those of you who are new to this or unfamiliar with it, uh, let me show you how this works. Right now, I'd like you to pull out your cell phone. And what you can do is get any question you have, take any question you have on, on God, life, theology, the Bible, Christian history, Christianity in general, Christian theology, um, fellowship of faith for that matter, or the church. Text them to that number right there, 815-314-0363. Anything is fair game. I will get them anonymously, and I will do my best to answer them right here on the spot. Because here at FOF, we believe questions are good, that doubt is normal, and to process it is the healthiest and most natural thing we can do, rather than shove it away as though we don't know. Maybe you've been here, and you've been walking around with this question that you've had, and you've never known who to ask. I just want to invite you to maybe give it a shot today. Maybe you've had a question and you're embarrassed to ask it because you feel like it's going to reveal something that you don't want to reveal. Well, this is anonymous today, so I invite you to ask it. Maybe you have a question that you feel is so basic or simple or so out there on the fringe and harebrained that you're like, can I ask that? Yes, ask it. Because I guarantee you this, if you're asking the question, someone else here probably is Two. 815-314-0363, and let's see what we left off with last week. What should you do when someone close to you is a stubborn non-believer? Let me tell you the story of Sandy Ward. Who here remembers Sandy Ward? Now, Sandy died, I want to say, five or six years ago, maybe even a little bit longer right now. Sandy, for all intents and purposes, was a widow. And here's what I mean. Sandy was married to a man named Tom for easily over 30 years, but he hated God, hated life, hated his condition, and hated where he was at. Tom was a Vietnam veteran. Tom got MS, and it debilitated him quickly. And it led him to a very dark place. How can God do this to me? What's the point of life in this world? And he lived with an anger and a hate and a spite. And Sandy, in many ways, found her family here among us at FOF as her husband increasingly closed himself off. Sandy prayed for Tom like no one I've ever seen. Have you ever prayed for something like every day, and nothing happens. You know, you know those like moments? And you get like six months into this, which is like marathon level, and you're like, I'm done. You're just tired. You have nothing left to pray. Sandy had moments like these. For 30 years, Sandy prayed for her husband. And understand what she would walk into. She would go home and invite him to church. He'd laugh at her. He, she would talk to him about God. What do you believe in that stupidness for? It was met with nothing but, 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 but just spite, anger, and she bore it patiently. 
but she didn't stop yearning, crying out, pleading to God for her husband. It took 35 years. And I remember vividly the day things started to change for her husband, Tom. But I'll fast forward to a moment when we were gathered here at Fellowship of Faith. And we were doing some baptisms for some people. And Tom was in the back, way back by those doors. And he was in his wheelchair. And sometimes, you know, you just feel God leading you to say something. And out of my mouth just kind of came, you know, if there's anyone that wants to be baptized today, why don't you come on up? And before the words left my mouth, Tom is fighting his way up in his wheelchair. Could not wait to give his life to Christ and accept that grace. And Tom lived for about five years past that, three years past the death of his wife, Sandy. And he lived a changed man. He still had MS. His body wasted away more. But the anger was replaced with something else. The hardness had been softened, and the man died in the Lord and is with him in his spouse. So what should you do when someone close to you is a stubborn non-believer? You should never give up. If Sandy's taught me anything, you should never give up. Keep praying. Keep hoping. Keep inviting. Keep loving. Keep sharing. Keep your own door open. You might be surprised at what God can do. Great question. How about this? How did Paul speak or preach to all his followers throughout his travels so that they could understand him? Being that there were so many nations and people that he spoke to. And of course, just reading through the, the book of Acts or reading through Paul's letters, you're going to see that his travels took him all over the Roman Empire with all different kinds of people groups and arguably languages represented. But here's what you need to remember. Much like English is an international language today, so Greek was the international language in Paul's day. And there's no surprise to me that Paul wrote in Greek because it was the common language that most people who were throughout the empire could at least speak, if not in fact read. The same was in fact true for Jews. In Jesus' day, it's arguable that the majority of Jews did not know Hebrew, but they knew Greek. And so what you see Paul doing is traveling using the universal language, speaking in the universal tongue that people would recognize. And not only that, Paul was not some what I would call street corner evangelist. Most of us, I think, get this idea that he would just like go into a town and like plop up churches somewhere. Paul was targeted and Paul was focused. And who he would target and what he would focus on is people he knew. Not personally, but his cultural background, his people group. He would go to synagogues. He would go to Jews who had a shared history, a shared culture, a shared worldview, and within that, sharing what Jesus had done for them. So that is how Paul was able to do it and people were able to understand it. How about this? Where did your beard go? 
Have you lost all your superhuman strength now? <laughs> yes, yes, I have. And if by superhuman strength you mean the ability to look like a haggard old man, it is gone, yes. So that's where it went. How about this? If I'm inexperienced reading or understanding the Bible, what is your recommendation to best understand it? How do I start? You know, this is going to sound, this isn't going to sound like the answer you want, but I assure you this is how you do it. You just start. So many people obsess themselves with trying to get all the background information and all the hermeneutical insights and all the, 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 the proper techniques in place first that they never actually get to reading the Bible itself. Just start. And when you go in, don't go in as an expert. When you go in, don't go in thinking you'll understand it all. When you go in, don't feel like you need to get every nuance and suck every piece of juice out of it. No, just begin. Because the experience and the knowledge only grows by doing it again and again and again. How do you begin playing basketball if you are inexperienced in playing? You pick up a ball. And you just start dribbling. And you just start shooting. And over time, it develops. This is also why we offer all kinds of classes here. Groups here and things of that nature. Kind of like coaching to basketball. Coaching to you to help you along the way. So can I suggest this? If I'm speaking to you today and you really don't know how to make heads or tails of the Bible, you really don't know where to start, you really don't know how this begins, open the book of Luke. I'm going to start you in the New Testament. I'm going to start you three books in. The Lord developed something called the Table of Contents, so if you don't know where Luke is, it'll help you find it quickly. All right? I would suggest start with the Gospel of Luke. It is the story of Jesus. And when you're done with that, move to Acts. And when you're done with that, come and talk to me, and I'll give you a book number three. All right? Great question. How about this? How about this? Let's go to live texting. All right. Let's see what you guys got here today. Man, I'm with you on this. Why don't we sing more Irish drinking songs in church? <laughs> Amen, brother. Amen. Seriously, like that death is arrested. Don't you need like a stein in your hand swaying with that? Isn't it the best? My gosh. How about this? How do I explain to my child who is questioning that the world was not created in seven days when people are telling her it's a scientific fact? If, if, I'm, if I'm understanding the way you worded this correctly, how do you explain the, 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 the veracity of a, a, a six-day, 24-hour kind of creation model um, in the face of the scientific evidence and prevailing worldview to the contrary? What I would suggest you do is two things. One, Start on your own personal journey. There is so much literature written on this subject. People who are deep, God-fearing people, who are Bible-believing people, who have come down in all different sorts of ways on how to best interpret Genesis 1 and 2. Start engaging in that discussion yourself. And you are going to find there is a wealth of knowledge out there and insight that is so supportive, especially of the prevailing worldview of the, the six-day creation that you're talking about. 
educate yourself so you can help guide your kids through it. But now let me put that over here. And let me talk to you about something that does pose a difficulty for people, but I think at some point stands at the heart of many things in the Christian faith. Sometimes God simply invites us to trust him, even when we can't make sense of it. Sometimes God simply says, take my word on something even if we don't have it all worked out yet. So I encourage you in this journey, do not let it separate you from that first posture of faith to simply say, Lord, uh, what do I do with this? But you've said something. You've shown something. You invite me to believe that it's true. So Lord, help me in this. Increase my faith as I seek to love and follow you. That's how I'd begin on that. All right. Come on. How do you comfort someone who feels betrayed and lied to by a loved one who has died? How do you comfort someone who feels betrayed and lied to by a loved one who has died. You know, I'll just kind of speak from my own experience in it. I'm not going to say this is the only way, but if this helps to give you any insight, it's to allow that person the space they need, the space to be angry, the space to say what they need to say, even if it's hurtful and even if it hurts to hear the space to be numb, the space to cry, the space to laugh. Let them know that you're a safe person to be around in a judgment-free zone and just be with them. Maybe offer to pray with them and not a fix-you kind of prayer either, just a Lord, we need you help kind of prayer. You'll be amazed at how loudly that speaks. Is depression a sin? How can someone be depressed if they are a Christian and believe in God? A lot of people are depressed who are Christian and believe in God. And it's a very easy thing to do. Ask most Christians. It's easy to do because we live in a broken, fallen world that's not the way it's supposed to be. And if that doesn't get you depressed at times, I wonder if you're not taking it seriously. We live with fallen, broken bodies that don't function the way God designed them to. And with that comes imbalances, psychological weakness, and other parts of brokenness within us. Depression is not a sin, but it's certainly a result of it. Depression is not a sin, but it's certainly an outcropping of the condition we call sin that has taken a hold and put its grip in this world. And that's why the Christian faith has always been rooted in this idea of hope. Not that our life now will be magically fixed, though we pray for that, don't we? But that we have the assurance that as dark as it is right now, this is not the last chapter in the story. And with God, there is no such word as helpless or hopeless, because in him there is the promise of final victory. 
So if you are plunged in or if your loved one is plunged in and you're trying to make heads or tails of that, maybe grant some perspective with that for yourself and hold on to that in the midst of it. How do you comfort... Uh, we got that already. It was so good, let's do it again. All right, want a weird one? In Genesis 6, it says the Nephilim were on the earth before the flood and also after that. Did they mean that they survived the flood? Let me read the passage to you. All right, from Genesis 6. This is so weird, and it's like my second favorite passage of the Bible. Here we go. This heads off the, 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 the account of Noah, you know, Noah's Ark and the flood. It says, when men began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God, and understand that the term sons of God is often a term that's given to celestial beings like angels, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Okay, that's weird. Then the Lord said, my spirit will not contend with man forever for he is mortal. His days will be numbered to 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them, they were the heroes of old, men of renown. And the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart were only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Who are the Nephilim? I want to recommend a book to you, and it's totally worth your time, because 20 seconds is not going to satisfy or scratch your itch. It's called The Unseen Realms, and what it does is it tracks so much of what I would call the celestial creatures. It's a biblical theology of the unseen spiritual world and assumptions that lie behind the Bible. It's interesting that the, the Nephilim pop up again and again outside of Genesis 6. You see them echoing through the conquest account, echoing into Judges, echoing into Samuel, and even flirting a little bit, I think, into Kings. You see that when the people are coming into Israel, they come against these giants who live in the land, and they feel like grasshoppers is their word in relation. And of course, the question is, who are these people? The text does not say much more than that. But yes, to answer your question, it does mean that they survived the flood. Day one to six was busy. Day seven, he tested. We hear all about what humans have done since then, but all of that time is nothing compared to what God can do in just one second. So why don't we hear about day eight and beyond? Following it, I think that the question is kind of going like this. God created the earth and the, the cosmos and its wonderful array in six days, rested on the seventh. So what is day eight and beyond? What you see in the Genesis account is that God creates the heavens and the earth. And on day six, he creates humanity. And what he does is something that surprises Christians even to this day. He invests in humanity, the continued ruling and creative power to continue on what God has begun. 
It's fascinating that Genesis 1 begins with a garden, and Revelation 22, which is the last chapter of the Bible, ends with a city. What's the difference between a garden and a city? Both are creations. One's a lot bigger, right? It's like God got something going and then tells humans, subdue the earth, rule it, act in my stead, develop this thing I have given you, day eight and beyond in many ways, rest in your hands. And how we have operated in day eight and beyond is how we will give answer to God someday. There's also an interesting line of thought within Judaic thinking about the eighth day being a new age God would create. It's fascinating that Jesus was resurrected on the first or the eighth day. All right. Okay, so it's a few texts, and it says that's all one question at the end. Let's see if we could work through this here. Why throughout Kings, the book of Kings in the Bible, why throughout Kings does it seemingly ask if some kings' reigns are not recorded within the annals of Judah, and then in other places it is possibly, positively, D-A-Y-I-B-G, D-A-Y-I-B-G, I don't even know what that means. But it is possibly the works are recorded. Why is this distinction? Why is this, why mention it? Or I'm, I'm not sure completely what you're getting at here, but let me take a stab at it. As you read through the Old Testament, you will find that it references other books all the times, other books explicitly. One is the book of Asher, another is the annals of the kings. And it kind of goes like this. You're reading through the reigns of all these kings of Judah, all these kings of Israel. And it'll give you kind of a couple snapshots about who these kings were or what they did or, or what their condition were like. And then it'll say something like, but their deeds are recorded in the books of the kings of Judah or the annals of Judah or the annals of Israel. And of course, no one knows what these books are, hopefully it will be fi- become the killer archaeological find of the 21st century. But until that time, it is left to mystery. But yes, there were other books written about the events that are recorded in the Bible. And the Bible itself references them. And it seems that the Bible chose to mention what it chose to mention because it was selecting data that was for its purpose, for the arguments it was making, for the insights it wanted to provide, for the big picture that it wanted to create. How about this? What can one do when they're looking for discernment but can't seem to hear God? Well, There's a few ways I'd like to kind of walk you through this. And again, remember that questions like these defy the simple formulaic answer. Here's some things I would suggest you try. A, remove yourself from distraction. I have heard this from missionary again and again and again who come back here stateside on leave 
saying, I can't hear God in the States. How long are you plugged in every day? How long are you surrounding yourself every day with flashing images, ringtones, and every other distraction along the way? Are you carving out space to simply be still, to be undistracted, and know that there is God? It is possible. Retreats do it all the time. Our students at Boulder just came back for a week of this. And they practiced something called a listening prayer in which they saw God work in the most amazing of ways. It can be done, but it will require probably an intentional step on your part to remove all the clutter. But let's say you've done that. Let's say you've been in that place and, and you still don't know. You know, it's not uncommon in the pages of the Bible for the people to record that they can't hear God either. They're seeking an answer from the Lord. They're seeking his voice and none is given. And it's not that they're missing it. It's that none is being given. That also can be the case. And of course, what do you do in that kind of time and place? Well, in your searching for the mystical voice inside, don't rule out the clear voice God has put in front of you. Are you studying and mining these pages? And not just like open up and go, okay, God, what am I supposed to do today? And it says the singers, the descendants of Asaph, were Shalom Alter Telon. Oh, it didn't help. You know what I mean? I'm not talking that kind of thing. But are you letting this shape your mind and renew your mind and your worldview? That's a place to start. And maybe you simply need to wait. Or maybe... God simply isn't going to deliver every answer easily into your hands. And as much as he's invested creation in you, he's invested decision-making authority in you as well. And says, just make up your mind, do it. I'm not going to tell you what to do. You've grown up in me. Choose. And choose wisely. Keep that in mind as well. Is there a part of the Bible that would help someone struggling with an addiction? Yeah, you know, here's parts that come immediately to mind to me. I think of the gospel stories, and particularly the way that Jesus would go and minister to people who were enslaved. I mean, maybe it's not an enslavement to alcohol or drugs or whatever the addiction might be, but enslaved in all kinds of ways and the authority of Jesus to speak into that. Read those stories, relish those stories, believe those stories, find hope and cry out to God in those stories. I think of passages that come out of Isaiah, Isaiah 51, Isaiah 54, really the 40 to 55 chunk is going to knock you on your butt. How God sends his redeeming right arm to free people who are enslaved. The God who liberates, the God who rescues, the God who saves. You can argue the entire Exodus story is a story of liberation and freedom, Exodus 1 to 15. And then douse in there a bit of Proverbs and some other things along the way. And I think he got some good fodder to begin with. 
All right, how about this? Hey, here's the text. Dinosaurs? Six question marks. Dinosaurs. All right, how about this? Oh, okay. What ceremonial elements in the Lutheran liturgy would you consider as indispensable to God and necessary for worship? Good question. None of them. None of them I would consider indispensable to God and necessary for worship. This is not to say that they don't provide good things. This is not to say that there isn't deep richness and edification or expression within them. But until I see in the pages of Scripture a thou shalt or a thou shalt not, when you worship, do this, neither should we. What alternatives exist to reduce the central focus um, of the worship team in the sanctuary? I'm sorry, some of this is together and I'm trying to kind of make sense of it. Um, and lessen the notion that the congregation is viewing a stage performance. Follow it, let me read it again. What alternatives exist to reduce the central focus of the worship team in the sanctuary and lessen the notion that the congregation is viewing a stage performance? So obviously, you know, our worship team is right up here. Well, you know, there's actually a lot of alternatives. We can put them in the coffee house and pipe them in. We can tuck them over to the side. We can put them in a closed room. We could put a screen in front and look at the screen and just hear the music. I want to speak to something behind it, though. And it's the fact that I would never want to see that done. God chooses people. God works through people. Genesis 1, again, sets the foundation that God has invested his incarnational presence in People, do you know where you see Jesus today? In people. This is why in the Lutheran liturgy, the pastor stands up and speaks as though he is Jesus himself. Allow the worship team to do the same. Okay, part three. If being a part of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod is important... How will you teach the historic traditions of the Lutheran church and liturgical worship in an environment that is heavily oriented to contemporary, you know, reformist songs and prayers? For example, there's no collect of the day or specific order of worship, things like that. Well, uh, you know, maybe it's not scratching the itch for how we do it here. And there's certain churches that pride themselves on teaching the historic liturgy, and make that the basis of what they want on Sunday morning. And there's a need for that in this world, and there's a value for that, but that targets one select thing to teach. That is not the path we've chosen here. And if you'd like, I would love to discuss with you some churches that are doing this really well that you know we could learn from, but maybe that you could learn from as well. But can I just encourage you to... Get away from fixed forms in your minds as being the way that liturgical elements are taught. And allow the liturgical elements to function with fresh voice themselves instead. 
What's important is confessing, confessing our sins to God and receiving his forgiveness. Not that it appears after the opening hymn and is designed in the way that they wrote it or translated into English in 1942. Can I suggest that when Jesus gave us the Lord's Prayer, he's giving us a model to pray, not magic words to say. Can I suggest that it's more important to learn the faith than just recite a creed? I don't like to set up either ors, but if that can help you understand the way that we've chosen to do it here at Fellowship of Faith. Yeah, good questions. This one rocks. What is the meaning of life? 42. It is, actually. That's, it's 42. After the flood, God expressed remorse. Was the flood a mistake? No, and, and I think you're confusing the text. God expressed remorse over creating humanity and so sent the flood. The better question was creating humanity a mistake. How about this? If Jesus was born in April... Why do we have Christmas? Well, first, there's no guarantee Jesus was born in April. Um, it's been one date speculated, but again, it is speculation. But there's really only a 1 in 365 shot that Jesus was born on December 25th. So why do we celebrate Christmas? Well, because we still want to celebrate Jesus' birthday. Follow up if you have anything. Why do many churches or denominations view female preachers as wrong or unqualified? Why do we not see more female pastors? Second question first. Well, you don't see more female pastors because there's been a nearly 2,000-year tradition of many churches and denominations viewing female preachers as I'm not going to use the word wrong, but it's not really unqualified either. It's out of bounds in some kind of way, wrong or unqualified. Here's basically kind of what it comes down to, and, and, and both a theological reason for it and then a sociological reason for it. Let's do the theological reason first. There are two really kind of, for this topic, hairy passages in the Bible that seem to disqualify women from leadership roles in the church. They're 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Corinthians 14. I'm going to let you read those on your own if you care, but after reading it, you can probably see why from kind of like a, a first point of contact, it would seem that females are disqualified from that kind of leadership in the church. Now, a lot of work has been done in these passages, especially in the last 50 years, arguably, and very compelling alternative ways of understanding them have come to the surface because the rest of the Bible seems to hold male and female as equal and prophetic and, and having roles based on gifts. So, again, I'm not going to get into that debate right now, but that is fundamentally the reason why theologically. Let's go to the sociological, and I think it has even more bearing, because birth control didn't exist until 1933. And before the days of birth control, you're pregnant all the time. 
And that simply disqualifies you from being able to do a lot of kinds of jobs, not only leading a church, but leading a government, leading a company, or even carrying down stable work in any other kind of way outside the home. So that's kind of why. Good question. All right. It's loading. Be patient. How about this? The political situations in our country are overwhelming to me particularly the situation at our southern border and the biblical justifications used to enforce the separation of children from parents. Your take on this, please. You stink. That's my take. Are you going to put me on the spot? No, it's, it's, it's a great, great question. And, uh, you know, you are not alone in the struggle. So many people are seeing what's going on. And there's this difficult tension God has invested his authority into various groups and various peoples, including government, including corrupt, unjust governments. Read Romans chapter 13. Governments are set up to seek to protect their citizens, to do what's right by the nation, to do even what's good in the world, and to see that justice is done. And so some level of law, most Christians would argue, is important even as it pertains to immigration. However, the church is often called to be a prophetic voice into what it views as injustices in the world, even if that means standing against your government, speaking into it as the prophets of old spoke to their kings. And so often we're called to do that as well. What I see in the Bible is basically this. God loves immigrants. He's got a special place in his heart for them. You know, it's like kind of God loves everyone, but God seems to love like widows, orphans, and immigrants more. You see this echo again and again and again and again through the pages of the Old Testament. And those people who are trying to come up from the southern border, I'd be one of them. Wouldn't you want to live here? What I'm not advocating here is a political position right now. How immigration reform has to happen is a debate for another time. But I would say this, as a believer in Christ, I believe soundly and firmly that we are called to love immigrants as Jesus. That Jesus was an immigrant to Egypt and back again. We are called to love immigrants no matter who they are, no matter their religious belief. No matter whether they're here legally or illegally, we are called to share with them the compassion, love, help, and support that Samaritans would share with Jews in that that great parable itself. So that is my take on what I see to be the more transcendent question beyond what the policies happen to be. We are out of time. The minutes fly by. And as of that last question, let me hit refresh. There's only three more. What I'm going to do is bat cleanup on those three next Sunday. But what I'm going to share with you is the questions that I never ask in church and give you some insight into that as well. Live texting will be open again as well, but I can't promise we'll get to them all. But I do encourage you to still bring your phone and let's see where it can take us. All right.